There we go. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, I've got two problems as I come to preach this morning, or two dilemmas. One, I've not been feeling very well this morning, although immediately I've got up to speak. I feel I've got my energy here. Secondly, I've got a problem concerning what I'm going to preach about, because some of you will disagree with it. Uh, some of you might write me off as a result of it, and uh, I don't want to be written off and all of that sort of stuff, because I quite like being loved, but I'm going to say things which uh, actually are different, uh, differences of opinion amongst us. As uh, Mark already pointed out, uh, in our series about the early church, in which we're not setting up the church of Acts as the model to follow, we're looking at them warts and all, uh, because they got a whole pile of things wrong as well as right. We're looking at the early church and we're seeing what can we learn which is going to help us as we move on to the future as uh, Bridge North Baptist Church. And on the screen, there's a slide which speaks of the big four in Acts 2, 42. Uh, Graham's been referring to this as the big four when he spoke about the apostles' teaching uh, a few weeks ago. And last week, Arlene spoke uh, very helpfully about fellowship. And today, we think about the breaking of bread and prayers. And uh, Graham knew this before he earmarked me for preaching on this particular day, because I told him when we were talking about this series, my problem is the assumption that we have is that the breaking of bread is communion. And I don't believe it is. And I want to explain why it's not communion or why I believe it's not communion. When I've studied this passage before for preaching in the church in Western Supermare, I looked at my notes and I saw that it's a bit like the referendum result or it's a bit like the results in Parliament of the votes at the moment. It's very, very close. It's almost 50-50, those people who believe that breaking of bread refers to communion and the other side of those who think breaking of bread simply means that. And I want to say this morning that I believe breaking of bread simply means that. It's eating together. It's part of the fellowship that Arlene talked about last week. And, and I was gobsmacked last week, Arlene, when you read from the Amplified Bible, and it says the breaking of bread, including the Lord's Supper, and then for verse 46, the breaking of bread, including the Lord's Supper. And I thought, I would be very, very careful in reading the Amplified Bible in the future. Those extra bits aren't holy writ. They aren't scripture. They're helpful commentaries. But we just need to examine stuff. So that's me, in a sense, laying some cards on the table. What does it mean, the breaking of bread? I believe it simply implies that the members of this church devoted themselves to breaking bread together and sharing in meals. It's part of common hospitality. It's part of common sharing together. It's part of fellowship. Incidentally, my personal definition of fellowship, for what it's worth, is we're all in the same boat. Fellowship. I sent it to the Reader's Digest once and claimed my 50 pounds, and they never even replied. But I think it's a wonderful definition of fellowship, all in the same boat. Breaking bread together was a common practice in Middle Eastern society. It was a symbol of hospitality, a symbol of welcome and togetherness. So when Cleopas and another disciple, and uh, I believe the other disciple was Mrs. Cleopas, but we will not argue that case today, when Cleopas and another disciple welcomed a stranger into their home in Emmaus, they invited him to break bread, and as he did so, they realized that the stranger was none other than the risen Jesus himself. 
And I don't believe they were sharing an embryonic communion service. In fact, didn't Jesus say in Luke 22:18 that he wouldn't partake of the fruit of the vine again, an integral part of communion, until the kingdom of God comes? So I don't think he was having a sneak preview with the Emmaus couple. I believe they were simply sharing food together, sharing hospitality, sharing fellowship. Now, why would anyone think that the reference to the breaking of the bread referred to communion or the Lord's Supper, which is the only unambiguous biblical title for it? And you can correct me afterwards in emails or, or whatever if you think I've got this uh, wrong. Let me suggest two and a half reasons why some people, in fact many people, believe that the breaking of bread refers to communion. One, because some traditions of the Christian church, notably the brethren, refer to the communion service as the breaking of bread. So if you've grown up in or you've been exposed to that tradition, for you it's a no-brainer. Let's just have a show of hands. Wave to me if you've been exposed to the Christian brethren movement at some time in your church experience. A number, not as many as I possibly thought may have been. The breaking of bread is clearly, for such people, a reference to communion. Now I have to ask a question. By calling communion the breaking of bread, are we not reading the Bible through the cultural spectacles of our church experience? Incidentally, why does it just say the breaking of bread? Why not? And the drinking of the cup, if what was meant here by Luke as he wrote the book of Acts meant the communion service. And then secondly, because the 1 Corinthians 11 passage assumes that the early Christians were following Jesus' directions to come together to share the Lord's Supper. And I guess the argument would go, wouldn't this then be one of the four things that the early church devoted themselves to? But I don't believe that this is necessarily a credible line of reasoning because this was immediately post-Pentecost. They took time to get their act together. Indeed, when we thought about the apostles' teaching in our home group a few weeks ago, we thought, how did Peter know what to say on the day of Pentecost? Because the disciples took a while for the penny to drop that what Jesus had been saying to them meant what it did. And we reckoned that uh, Peter was speaking prophetically on the day of Pentecost and the Lord was filling his mouth as he, as, as he spoke. But they hadn't actually got themselves organized. But it was the most natural thing for a group of people with a common bond to do was to eat together, to share together, to fellowship together. And here's the two and a half or the half of the two and a half. Some commentators say that if the text of Acts 2.42 had simply said breaking of bread, then this would be a reference to common hospitality. But the inclusion of the definite article, the breaking of bread, makes all the difference and implies some form of ceremony. But in some versions of the, the New Testament, in some uh, texts, it says the fellowship and the prayers. And nobody's suggesting, I don't think, that the fellowship was a rite of the church in the same way that the Lord's Supper became. Now you might be thinking, you might have turned off already, you, you might really be worried about me. You might be saying, well, you were worried about me, some of you already, <laughs> nothing to do with it. Those of you who know me really worry about me anyway, and I appreciate that because I assume that means you're praying for me as well. I hope so. But you might be thinking, what is that boy on? Why is he being so pedantic? Why doesn't he just roll over, let it lie, and preach about communion? 
I'll tell you why. Because how we approach the Bible is incredibly important. Graham said that at the beginning of this series. How we approach the Bible is incredibly important, and particularly in this day and age when we're threatened on all sides on issues of truth concerning human sexuality or even issues of judgment where a friend of mine goes through the Bible, knocks out everything that says judgment and says, a God of love couldn't have had that in there. He didn't really mean that. When we're threatened in those kind of ways, we need to be totally sure that what we believe the Bible says is actually what the Bible says. And Graham says amen, so he's not offended at all by what I've said today. And I grew up in the brethren. And he grew up in the brethren. (laughs) And he grew out of the brethren. I had a PA in in, uh, Evangelical Alliance who was a a good brethren girl from uh, Glasgow. I brought her down from Glasgow to be my PA, and she grew up in a brethren church in the north of Glasgow. And when I called her a brethren girl, she got really, really upset. But you can take the girl out of the brethren, but you can't take the brethren out of the girl. And it's the same with whatever our historical background is, whatever our church experience is, whatever our experience is of many things in life, our journey conditions how we think about things. And when we come to biblical interpretation, we cannot afford to be careless. We must try hard not to inadvertently read the Bible through our cultural assumptions and experience. So cards on the table. I personally don't believe the reference here is exclusively or even specifically to communion. In a a subsequent verse, Acts 2.46, we read, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. To break bread, I would suggest again, is an expression of a shared life and intermeshes with or overlaps with fellowship. I used to live in the east end of, of London, in Docklands, and there was one church plant in the east end of London built into the founding principles, no meeting without eating. And I think that's a great principle, an absolutely great principle. So I want to ask the question, just before we do get on to the other passage and talk about communion, which I want to do in some depth, to what extent are you devoted, because the New Christians devoted themselves to four things, and one of them was the breaking of bread. To what extent are you devoted to the breaking of the bread in the sense of sharing meals together in one another's homes or going out together for a meal, even buying one another a meal? Just over a a year ago, we were encouraged to the use of the acronym BELLS in our missional life, and the E in BELLS was eating together, eating together as Christians, eating together deliberately and intentionally and missionally with non-Christians as well. So it does stand alone. It doesn't have to be forced to mean communion. And Arlene indicated last week, you can't be best buddies with each person in a congregation of over a hundred people, but eating together in smaller or larger groups is a great way to get to know one another and to build fellowship. So as to whether the breaking of bread refers to communion, I leave you to form your own opinion. I leave you to go back to Scripture and try and work out if you're reading Scripture through your cultural spectacles or whether Scripture says something different. And if it 
puzzles you and troubles you. Remember the words of Mark Twain, who didn't write the second gospel. His name also was Mark. Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that worry me. It's the parts of the Bible that do. So don't get too worked up about what I've been saying, but I think it is important that we have a good look at Scripture and see what we're bringing to it and whether we're reading things into Scripture or whether we're allowing Scripture to read stuff into us. Now I turn to the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 in which Paul castigates the Corinthian Christians for the aberration of the Lord's Supper, which they're coming together to celebrate and reminds them of what Jesus has said they should be doing. Now, those of you who know the story would realize that Paul, uh, then Saul of Tarsus, wasn't there in the upper room on the night when Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot and Jesus shared the Lord's Supper with his disciples. But he does claim a special revelation from Jesus of the procedure to be adopted when sharing together in bread and wine as Jesus instructed so 1 Corinthians 11:23 for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he'd given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me and it's pretty clear from a reading of the full passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that the sharing of bread and wine in remembrance of Jesus' death was not so much a formalized ritual in the context of a church service, but was an integral part of a shared meal. In our church in Glasgow, we tried to make some kind of nod in that direction when on a couple of Easter Sundays we had a shared meal at the end of our service and we shared bread and wine between the pudding and the coffee. And that seemed to work for us really, really well. So here's the background as we understand it. In the early church, and we know this too from church history, the Christians celebrated love feasts of which communion was an integral part. One of the initial things that was said by the Romans who were persecuting the early Christians, one of the things that was said about them to bring them down and to discredit them was that they held orgies. And that was because they used the word love feast. They were also accused of cannibalism because they spoke about eating the body and drinking the blood. So these, these things were around and about. A love feast would be the equivalent to what we might call a bring and share meal. Everyone brings something to eat enough for their family group and some extra for those who either never knew the meal was happening or who did not have the financial means to contribute. Then, and this is the important bit, all the food is centralized and available to everyone, whether they contributed or not at all. Sometimes in America, it's called a potluck supper. A pastor of mine came back from America having been exposed to the potluck supper, and he couldn't bring himself to say that in our Scottish Baptist church, so he started holding pot providence suppers. It didn't, it didn't sound quite the same sort of uh, way, the pot providence supper. When I did a pulpit exchange with a pastor in Tennessee, they had covered dish, and all the ladies, and it was the ladies, brought their best dish in a casserole. 
So what could possibly go wrong in uh, a shared meal such as the love feast? You really want to know? Even when we have a shared meal like, uh, you know, potluck supper or whatever we, we call it, it can be the equivalent of the Great British Bake Off with the best bakers and cooks providing food which is very popular and goes quickly, whereas the contributions from less sophisticated providers is left on the plate. So why did nobody take any of my stuff? Well, the person whose stuff has been most appreciated goes home smugly. My food, again, was clearly the best on the table. And potentially, you see this division in the body. And what the Apostle Paul is having a go at in 1 Corinthians 11 is an extreme case of abuse in the love feast or fellowship meal, which in this case clearly involved the Lord's Supper. Here's the scenario they didn't share. Some people had nothing to eat, while the more well-heeled members gorged themselves on the rich contribution that they had brought. And that's not all. Some of them drank so much wine Here's a piece of information of interest to those who argue it was non-alcoholic fruit juice they used in the early communion service. Or wine so watered down it could affect no one negatively. They had drank so much wine that they were drunk. And Paul is quite straight in what he says. He doesn't beat about the bush. He says, haven't you got homes in which to eat and drink? When you come together in this way, it's not the Lord's Supper that you share. Why? Because you do not discern the body. And that's what I want us to think about for the next few moments. What does it mean to discern the body? Here's what he actually says. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. What does this mean? How can you eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner? Well, for starters, if the bread and wine are to remind us of the death of Christ for our salvation, we shouldn't trivialize what we're doing as if it didn't matter. The death of Christ on the cross is central to our faith. We approach the cross as equals for all have sinned and called short of the glory of God. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. So if we're looking down on our brothers and sisters because they could not or did not provide as much for the common meal as we did, we are eating the bread and wine in an unworthy manner. We dishonor the cross which unites us. Remember in John 12, Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men and women to myself. And Paul emphasizes his point by partial repetition. So everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. In fact, he acknowledges that some have actually ended up ill as a result of this disrespect. What is the body of Christ referred to here? I believe it is the gathered body of believers, the participants in the Lord's Supper. Granted, there are those who believe the references to the actual bread and wine, which in their understanding have become the body and blood of Christ. They will read Scripture differently. But if we read this Scripture carefully, I'm pretty sure you would come to the conclusion that the body which we need to discern, the body which we need to treat with respect, is us. It's one another. It's the people. It's not the symbols on the table. 
Now, over the years, I must have led hundreds of communion services. That's a frightening thought. And obviously participated in many others led by other people. When I've led communion services, I've tried to think carefully about the words I use. At first, I used to follow the style of whoever was my sort of guru or role model at the time. And if they used a particular book, a service book, I would want to use that. And I would, if I was going to, as a visiting preacher, when I was studying for the ministry to a church, I would want to know what they did so that I didn't sort of trip over anything. But over the years, as I've tried to think carefully about the words I use and have tried to be as simplistic and straightforward as I can, I've tried to be influenced by what the Bible actually says rather than what I've heard others say or what I've read in service books. As a free church, we have the freedom to use service books from different traditions. But it's a good idea to check that what they actually say in those service books actually falls in with what we understand to be the biblical truth. I've also been aware that although I've been a Baptist minister, many members of the Baptist churches I've pastored have had Christian experience in churches of different traditions. And when it comes to communion, they bring with them their expectations and their previous experience. So in Glasgow, many of the members of the congregation were ex-brethren. Some of them members, ex-members of Graham's childhood brethren assembly. In Western Supermare, we had lots of people who come from the Anglican tradition. What we've called communion and understood it to be in our different traditions will vary. So we can never assume that every person participating in our communion services has exactly the same idea of what they're participating in. So for those of a Catholic or Orthodox tradition, it's a sacrament the sacrament of Holy Communion. According to an early church father, Augustine of Hippo, a sacrament is an outward sign of an inward grace that has been instituted by Jesus Christ. In respect of communion, the understanding is that something significant happens when you eat the bread and drink the wine, and that you're missing out if you don't partake, because these elements, consecrated elements, actually do something for you when you partake of them. This is sometimes closely associated with what's called the real presence in bread and wine. It involves the consecration of the bread and wine and therefore their careful handling after the service and the practice of taking some of the bread and wine used in the service to the sick or imprisoned. In Baptist tradition, in many free church traditions, it's called an ordinance. One of two practices Jesus commanded or ordered Christians to do the other being baptism. Here's something Jesus instructed us to do. So we do it, and the blessing comes not through the property of consecrated bread and wine. The blessing comes through our obedience to what Jesus has asked us to do. And brethren, and some of the new churches which have brethren antecedents refer to the breaking of bread, but the understanding of what's going on would be very, very similar to the Baptist tradition and what we'll be doing a little bit later. In some situations and traditions, the word Eucharist is used. That's a good word. It means thanksgiving for the death of Christ. The Lord's Supper is the biblical expression derived from our passage in 1 Corinthians 11. So for some, this would be the sacraments of the Lord's Supper. For others of us, the Lord's Supper, a sort of other way of saying communion. 
I, I think we really do need to go some historical stuff here as well this morning, so I hope I'm not taxing you too much this morning. But historically, there have been three different ways of understanding the bread and the wine, and there may actually be more, but those understandings hang on in people's lives and understandings and influence the way in which they approach the Lord's Supper now, and therefore we need to look at them. An early understanding in the Catholic and Orthodox tradition was called transubstantiation where it was taught that when the bread and the wine were consecrated by a priest, they actually became the body and blood of Jesus, and they talk about the sacrifice of the mass, and Jesus, in a sense, was being crucified again. That's, that's historical. To what extent that continues in today's Catholic churches, I've, I've no idea, and some of you would know better than me. The second word is consubstantiation, which I've never for the life of me been able to get my head around. Because I studied in Edinburgh University in Scotland, where the predominant church is the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, and, and my Church of Scotland friends told me it was the, the spiritual version of the bread and wine becoming the body and blood of Christ. And I, and I couldn't understand the distinction between that and what we would talk about, which is remembrance or commemoration, which sees the body and the bread and the wine simply as symbolic of the body and blood of Christ. And there have been fierce battles over these differing understandings when what should unite has been the focus of division. So across the traditions, and within the traditions, there have been differences in understanding in who may participate in communion. So in some context, you must be confirmed before you can take your first communion, or closer to home, you must have been baptized as a believer or be a church member. Some of you, many of you will know that uh, over the last three years, Graham did uh, a course of study uh, with a Baptist union to qualify as a Baptist lay pastor. And obviously one of the things he learned on that course, he said to me the other day, he says, you know why they have a balcony in a Baptist church? It's so that the wicked sinners could sit up there during communion while everybody who was a Christian and eligible for communion could sit down below. And he's nodding, so I've got it right, which gives me the opportunity to say, sorry, you wicked sinners up there. But remember, we do invite you down for communion in a few moments' time. That's okay. Yeah, sorry, forgot that bit. But it gives me the opportunity to say a great congratulations to Graham for the completion of his three years of study, which took many, many Saturday mornings, which took many, many essays, which took many, many arguments, because Graham is a man of absolute integrity with those who were marking the papers and didn't agree with what he'd said. But Graham passed, and we really want to congratulate you, and we really want to say, we are so glad that you don't have to go through those classes and those essays ever again. Fan. Fantastic. Where were we? Okay, so that was who may take communion. We take the view that everyone who wants to remember Jesus in his death is welcome to share in bread and wine, and that includes children. Now, there's all sorts of variants. 
Who can lead a communion service? In some traditions, you need the involvement of a priest or an ordained minister. So two years or more ago when I went on a, a trip to Israel with, with a group of people and we came to the garden tomb and we were going to share communion, they came to me and said, I think we better ask you to do the communion service because you're an ordained minister and some people here will get their knickers in, well, will get upset if uh, it's not an ordained minister who actually presides over the communion service. Then we get to the one cup or many. One cup or many, when it was alcoholic wine that was commonly used, one cup was fine because it was thought that the alcohol would kill off any germs that might be passed on. But once it went in some circumstances to non-alcoholic grape juice, they introduced little glasses for that purpose. So nobody drank your glass apart from you. Come on in, guys. We're not quite ready yet because this guy is going on and on and on here. Okay. Hey, that's a reminder. John, hurry up. Yes. Nearly there. Okay. Shared loaf or diced bread. A Russian Baptist lady that I met in Switzerland got really upset when she saw diced bread on the communion table. How dare they take a knife to the body of the Lord, she said. In fact, I've noticed there can be more rows in a church over communion than almost any other issue. So many of us have our sacred cows in regard to communion. For example, frequency. In the King James Version, 1 Corinthians 11:26 says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, and some people say, oh, matter solved, we have to do it often. But that's not what the passage says, as the NIV rightly translates the underlying text as whenever. In other words, frequency is not prescribed. When I went to university in Edinburgh, we stood in alphabetical order in the biology lab, and I stood next to Maureen Smith, because I'm John Smith, and it made sense. She'd shown no interest in Christian things at all, so I was surprised when she said she was going home to Perthshire at the weekend for communion. And it was through this I discovered the Presbyterian tradition in the Church of Scotland celebrated communion twice a year in an attempt to make it special. But for Maureen, it had just become a social occasion. She was expected to be there. We had members of the church in Western Supermer who got themselves into a right fankle when we reduced the number of times a month when we had communion. If we didn't have it every week, they'd have to go to the Anglicans on the missing Sundays. That was their threat. Graham mentioned the other week about a Baptist minister threatened with disciplinary action for daring to move the communion table. We had a gentleman in Western Supermer who got really upset that the communion table was not exactly centrally placed, and he refused to come to the service in the maid auditorium unless that changed. So he went to an earlier service up the stairs where we did communion off a coffee table, and he didn't seem to worry at all. In in a church plant I was involved in in Docklands, our pastor tried to do things as simply as possible, and one night she had this beautiful basket of all different kinds of bread for communion. And then she had a tiny little bottle of Merlot, which she poured into a tumbler, and we passed it round. And my lifelong teetotal mother-in-law was there on that occasion, and we thought, let's just keep quiet. So. She had some too, and she said to me afterwards, so what was that we were drinking? I said, wouldn't worry about it, it's called Melot. And uh, 
She lived a lot long after that. But uh, <laughs> one lady who joined us said to Penny, our pastor, I see you haven't got a chalice. And she, she didn't go to Jeff Bristow's shop. She went to a charity shop and she brought home a football trophy and she presented it to Penny <laughs> along with a cloth. You haven't got a cloth. She didn't understand what we were trying to do. You can imagine on the occasion in Western and when in an all-age interactive event, interactive event, we shared communion with heart-shaped pieces of bread spread with strawberry jam. Goodness. I want to ask you, have you got your communion sacred cow? Have I trod on any toes this morning in terms of how we do communion? or how you would prefer us to do communion. First of all, it was a business book, and then the title was taken over as a Christmas book, Sacred Cows Make Gourmet Burgers. So if we've got sacred cows that we bring to our celebration of communion, and they're not biblical or scriptural, let's get cooking. Let's fry those burgers. So why not chill a bit and look again with open eyes and open minds at what Paul received from the Lord, which he also delivered unto the Corinthians and by implication to us. In the Lord's Supper, and we celebrate it in a few moments, I believe we do three things. There's a past dimension. We look back in thanksgiving for Christ's sacrificial death on our behalf. It's a Eucharist, it's a thanksgiving. We look forward as we proclaim Christ's death till he comes. Proclaiming, who are we proclaiming to if we exclude people from seeing what's going on? Well, we might argue that we're proclaiming to principalities and powers that Jesus' death has taken place and is powerful. We might say that we're proclaiming to one another that Jesus' death is important to us. But there's an evangelistic impact as well if those who are not yet Christians are watching. And a friend of mine became a Christian when as a 16-year-old, he observed his parents being welcomed into membership of a church at communion. And thirdly, we're almost back where we started. There's a present element as we acknowledge and respect one another in the body of Christ, and we recognize the new relationship we currently enjoy with God through the new agreement, the new covenant in His blood. In just a few moments, we're going to share in communion. I want to suggest to you this morning, very reverently, that we could call it meerkat communion. Those of you who've seen the adverts on the television with the meerkats, you know what they say? Simples. So we're going to do communion in the most simple way that is possible. Graham, you're going to come in here. Thank you, John. Bless you. Welcome back to the children. It's good to have you back with us.